Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, in through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Hey audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I have Scott Chopin from Urban Pacific Group of Companies, which is based out of Long Beach, California. It's going to be a very interesting topic that we're going to discuss because I think Scott is focused a lot on workforce housing development. Hey, Scott, welcome to the show. Yeah, James, thank you for the invite. Glad to meet you and glad to be here. So, Scott, can you tell me... Uh, which markets are you focused on right now? So for our workforce housing model, which we have given the name Urban Townhouse or UTH for short, uh, you know, Southern California is our home base. So this is a new innovation. And so we're really bringing this business plan to life in Southern California it's because we know the market so well. It's our backyard. Um, but we actually do have a strategic plan presently in place that would take us th- in other markets in, sub- in California. So I think San Diego and the Bay Area. And then we've underwritten this product in several Western marketplaces. So I think Portland, Seattle, Denver, uh, this workforce housing model works in all those markets. And then recently, we've been exploring the, the Dallas-Fort Worth marketplace. Uh, presently, it. active projects are all in you know Southern California, being LA and Orange Counties. Got it. So let's go back into the details. When you say workforce housing development, right? So this is different from what you know people like me who buy Class B and C workforce housing and we rehab them, right? So mm-hmm. you are uh, basically a developer, right? Uh, so I'm I'm, right. I'm very curious on how this. You know, developing versus you know buying rehab can merge together in terms of price point. But you are saying workforce housing is not a, it's not the normal class A uh, housing that's being built everywhere, right? So can you explain yep. the difference between class A new apartment building versus your product classes and what do you target for in terms of the quality of the construction, the price, uh, rent price, and all that? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So the way we think of it, uh, UTH really is a middle market product. You might describe it uh, both in the context of the you know the level of the build. So our finishes would be in the middle of the market, right? We're not you know luxury, um, but neither are we you know true affordable housing where you'd really try to keep costs ultra low. We're we're sort of in between those two. And then the families we serve are middle income families or moderate income is another way to describe it. And so. Our predominant uh, tenant avatar would be a large family. Um, in California, you would think like Hispanic families, Asian families, and certain micro markets. And these families would be, you know, working families. Uh, I think blue collar would be another way to describe it. And that they're generally making between 80 and 120% of median income for whatever location we're building in. So LA and Orange County is, you know, for the, for the product that we're building presently. 
And why we focus on that market is basically, you know, you know, in the in the development marketplace, you have the luxury end of the marketplace, right? Where it's, you know, it's high amenities, very nice finishes, um, you know, high-end product, right? High rents, uh, urban locations, you know, downtown uh, or other high-income marketplaces. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what I call true affordable housing. So that would be government subsidized low-income housing tax credit projects. You know, true affordable serving families that are below sixty percent of median income is how we typically think of it. We uh, build to the middle. We build to the space in between those, and so UTH or urban townhouse is our model, and that's intended to basically you know bridge the space between luxury and true affordable to serve families that again are in these eighty to one hundred twenty percent of median income in really a marketplace that nobody's serving, right? Um, so no developers or like very few, maybe is the way to say it, really are intentionally looking to serve these working families. And that's important because basically these are the families that uh, incomes are stagnant. Uh, generally, they're going to be service workers, service economy, um, and that they don't make necessarily enough money to afford the luxury product. Or more importantly for us, the demographic you know, profile. So these are large families, think six to 10 people in a family. That would be mom and dad, maybe an adult child or two, in-laws, older, maybe grandparents, and then younger kids, either of the parents or of the adult kids. But more importantly, they have two to four wage earners. And that's the really the, the, the sort of the most important part of this demographic is that they have already the lifestyle of sharing incomes and expenses across the family group with multiple wage earners, right? And so we serve that by building a five-bedroom, four-bath uh, rental product. Again, middle market specifications. You know, if you'd walk into these units, you'd think, you know, pretty standard apartment uh, finishes, um, but we're at every part of the development cycle looking to simplify. So we have a simpler build process and the, you know, we do a three-story on-grade product. You know, we keep the finishes you know, moderate or middle market. Um, so we can keep costs down. We buy land in markets that are low and lower middle income neighborhoods, think B and C neighborhoods, right? If you're going to put that designation on it and across the whole development cycle, we're able to simplify it really at every possible place that we can with the net effect of reducing cost, which helps us basically keep the rents generally are between three and 4,000 a month. But remember, that's a five-bedroom, four-bath unit, 1,750 square feet. So it's a combination of the way we say it, James, we're pairing private capital with a workforce housing model. And the way that we make that feasible and produce uh, yields to our private equity investors is that we have this vast simplification and this particular model of the five-bedroom, four-bath unit. So how many of this product have you guys to build and sold? I mean, is it, is it a proven concept? Because that's a completely new concept, right? It is a new concept. But, uh, so to answer your question, it's a good question, by the way. So we, when we created this product about three years ago, we basically had, we made the intentional decision to do what we call a demonstration phase of projects. And that was actually four original projects that we kept sort of small and mid-sized on purpose so that we could prove the model really. Mm -hmm. and, and the way that we think of proving the model is really in three places. One, can we rent it for what we say, right? Uh, very few developers, in fact, almost none are doing five bedroom, four bath townhouse rental units. 
Second, could we build it for what we projected, right? Build costs and development being, you know, ever, ever important, right? That's never a, a factor that you ignore. And then third, and really most importantly, is can we value it at its completion and stabilization at a value that is appropriate in a sale if we sold it or in a refinance, say we'd get a perm loan to take out the construction loan? And import, more, most importantly, is are we producing yields to our investors, right? So we've actually, of the four original projects in the demonstration phase, we've finished three and sold those and produced a 22.66% IRR uh, across that original three-project portfolio. Um, we sold our last building uh, actually in January. And then the, f- the three projects uh, sold. The fourth project of the demonstration phase, we actually are completing now. And we've actually switched now to a long-term hold model. So the first three were merchant build, think build it, rent it, sell it. Um, but we believe in the product type so so much that we're actually going to keep everything that we build now is going to be long-term hold oriented. Uh, and that's because of the belief. But also having a long-term orientation actually gives us a, a more defensive positioning relative to a recession, which you know, in today's interview is important relative to this coronavirus, you know, economic mm-hmm. situation that we find ourselves in. Because these families, these these multiple wage earner families are, are really, uh, when hard times come, they tend to batten down the hatches in place. That's the way we call it, right? And so we like that profile versus other profiles, which, you know, nothing wrong with a Gen Z renter, right? It's just that the Gen Z renter is very mobile, right? So when, they, when their job situation changes, you know, which is a very important thing today, right now, coronavirus with the shutdown. Um, that they can move very quickly. They have nothing to tie them down. They don't have kids in school, right? They don't have church close by. Their extended family is probably in another city where they grew up, right? Our families, basically these these you know these middle income families, you know, kids are in school locally. Church is close by. You know, extended family is close by, and uh, most importantly, their job is usually you know somewhere uh, close by. They choose their housing location to be coherent with their job location. What all that does, that makes them very stable in uh, turbulent times because rather than trying to move across the country because they have such a strong social network locally that, that has them stay. And we don't say that staying or leaving is wrong or right, right? Everybody's choice will be right for themselves. We just say for our demographic profile, we want to rent to families that we know are going to be generally stable and that will stick around and, you know, stick around for a long time. I'm not sure. I mean, five bedroom, four bathroom is definitely uh, catering to, not, I wouldn't say niche because a lot of uh, demographic that you talked about do stay in, in groups, right? to stay in families and there's multiple yeah. which, yeah. so that's very exciting to see someone is really catering to that, um, the need of that demographic, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people, as you mentioned, in Asia and even in the Hispanic community, they like to stay, you know, within the families, and that's very important. I mean, how did you came up with this concept? Is it something that you saw somebody else doing, or did you guys see there's a need? And what were you doing before that? And how was the aha moment to come to this model? Yeah, no, great question. So, you know, since I formed the company in 2000, we've really been an urban infill. So, think you know, a developer that builds in already existing neighborhoods and you know, cities that are urbanized. So think urban metros. So we've always been oriented around the demographic profiles that exist in a city, right? Which can be very vast, right? So there's obviously 
you know, lots of different, you know, demographic niches inside there. So there's a couple ways that we came up with the UTH innovation. So first really is my background. So I originally, when I came into the development business, I worked for a company uh, that developed affordable housing projects. So think true government subsidized affordable housing. And from that, I got background in basically serving uh, lower income families, right? And some of the projects that we built, we would do, you know, even three and four bedroom units on occasion. So I always knew, you know, fundamentally that there was a very, very high demand in that demographic and also very low supply, right? Remember, government subsidized housing is always limited by the amount of government subsidy that's available, which is not endless, right? It's a, it's a finite resource and there's always more demand uh, than there is supply in that marketplace. So that's one end of the spectrum. Then for uh, several years, I worked for uh, market rate development companies um, that basically did luxury product, right? And so from that, you know, I learned what the luxury marketplace was, but that also is the market where there is private capital, not unlimited, but, you know, certainly as much capital is available generally in a marketplace where there's good projects to invest in and they can make money, right? That attracts capital. And so in 2016, um, a couple things happened. One is there was a slight flattening in the marketplace in Southern California. And what that meant basically was that equity and debt thought that there was a large amount of new supply coming online, which there was, they were right. And that had them be a little bit more cautious at the time. And so it gave us the chance to start to look for something different from what everybody else was doing, which was predominantly, you know, high density studio and one bedroom, you know, mixed projects that serve Gen Z and millennial demographic, right? Which is a perfectly appropriate market, biggest demographic cohort in US history, right? Kids and baby boomers, you know, the millennials generally. But we've always been a niche player. We've always been looking for something that's contrary and uncommon, right? That's why we started doing urban in 2000, which, you know, wasn't really, you know, a thing at that point. You know, nobody was doing that. We were early adopters in that space. So we've always been oriented that way. And then what happened is because we started to look around, we we started looking at different sites and, and different locations. And we actually bought a site in downtown Long Beach, which is, you know, my hometown city and where we're based as a company. And we bought it really, really well, right? Very inexpensively on a per unit basis. And that gave us the, the, the capability to experiment. And one of the interesting things about the site is that it was limited on the unit count that we could build, right? So mm-hmm. it said, hey, you can only build you know, so many units on this land area. But it wasn't limited in the type of unit or particularly the unit size that could be developed. And so what that gave us was this interesting idea of, Let's expand. Okay, I can't do more units, but I can't expand the size of the unit, right? And to maximize that project at the time, we went to a four-bedroom, three-bath, two-story townhouse product. And the, and the, the story we had about that was, hey, we can't do more units, but we can make the units bigger. And that will produce the capability to rent more on a whole dollar basis. Like we could we could charge a higher rent. And that project, that first project was exceptionally successful, James. In fact, we underwrote rents for these four-bedroom townhouse units at $2,650. And when they finally went to market, they were basically up at $3,250, right? This is in downtown Long Beach in Southern California. And that really, for us, that was the aha moment. We go, oh, there's a lot of value there. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, you know, we can we can basically achieve more rents than what we underwrote. We were being conservative, which is our natural inclination, of course. Um, 
but that gave us the idea. And then we started to basically evolve the product. So we went from a two-story townhouse, four bedroom, three bath, and we sort of riffed on the idea, well, could we add more bedrooms? Would that be, you know, would that produce more rent? And so we sort of toyed around with a five and six bedroom concept and settled on a five bedroom product, four bath, which we described earlier. And then we did one other change is we went from a two-story model to a three-story model, still two-car garage on the ground floor. And what that did is that shrunk the footprint so we could fit more units on a given piece of land. It increased our density. And in the development world, you know, producing more density on a given piece of ground, as long as the bill costs are appropriate, will ge- generally, you know, have it be a more profitable, you know, or a, a you know, more productive project. And so from that first project, we created the demonstration phase, went and acquired, you know, several more sites and then have continued. So we're now through where, let's see, we're our, our sixth and seventh projects on this model. And we finished the demonstration phase up that proved it, the model with this IRRs that we produced. We're converting to a long-term hold. Now what we're doing is we're basically growing in project size, right? As we've uh, mitigated the risk and now have a clearer understanding of the product type because, you know, again, nobody's doing this and certainly nobody's doing this at scale. I mean, there's a handful of people around the United States that we can see that are doing little small projects, uh, are very, you know, micro market focused. Uh, we're the only one that I can tell that's basically bringing, you know, large amounts of, of, you know, middle market or institutional capital to larger projects, really scaling the model. Uh, so recent projects would be, we have an 85 unit project in a city called El Monte, which is in Southern California. Um, and we'll do that in two phases. First phase will be 54 and the second phase will be 31. So you can see we've sort of marched up the food chain, both in project size as well as project volume. Now, of course, we are always conscious of the market cycle, you know, in today's environment with this coronavirus recession, we're going to probably end up calling it. Um, that, you know, we are always tracking that and always, always have. Right. Um, and so now we're in that mode of being very cautious on, you know, acquisition of new projects. We're underwriting more defensively, you know, really testing rents, you know, much more often. Um, and so we're now find ourselves in that, you know, part of the market cycle. Although we do think this product performs well because of this fam, this defensive family demographic that we talked about. So what kind of zoning does this kind of development needs? Is it single family or is it multifamily or what is that? So Yeah, great question. So what we did when we first put the plan together is because we're from California and California has very difficult entitlement, you know, process. So I think rezones, site plan review, conditional use permits. We basically made a rule that in the, you know, all the projects that we purchased or developed would be by right zoned, right? Meaning it already had zoning that worked for the product type. So, but what is, what is the zoning? Yeah. So as an example, R3 zone would be, you know, what we typically look for. Now, every city has a different version of R3 zone, right? But it's a product that basically develops at about 22 to the acre. Okay. uh, We're a three-story product. But it's R3 multifamily, right? Commercial. R3 multifamily, right. Okay, now, right. So now, it's not a single family zoning. It's I'm- not, but with mm-hmm. this caveat, James, which in California and some other markets like uh, Minneapolis uh, and, and some cities in Oregon, they're starting to convert single family zoning where you can build like triplex and quadplex 
apartment projects on single family lots with single family zoning, right? As sort of a zoning overlay. And that's starting to become a new trend. In fact, California is working on a new law um, to potentially convert all single family zoning across the state into this triplex, quadplex. And if that happens, uh, that's going to be a game changer for us. Now, you know, we're not necessarily, you know, want wanting to do three and four unit projects. We want to work on bigger stuff, but we might be able to go into a neighborhood and and buy, you know, three or four or five or ten or fifteen houses, you know, possibly, um, or maybe undeveloped lots that are R one. In that case, when that law, if that law passes. And we could use single family zoning in that way. Now that doesn't exist today in California. Okay. So I'm speculating on the future, um, but we do have the capability to be flexible and dynamic within the zoning uh, story. Right. Uh, and we don't want to do major entitlements. Um, so anything with a heavy lift entitlement process will usually pass on. Yeah. It's that. too much headache for in California. Too right? much so. <laughs> yeah. And again, back to this idea of, of simplicity, right? Uh-huh. Uh, the, the saying I have James is, complexity is the enemy of profits in real estate development. So the more complex your project, that's build, that's market, that's underwriting, that's the cycle, right? Like we're in a complex environment now with coronavirus. Um, Those are all going to degrade your profitability. So our job is to look for a combination of all the most, the, the maximum simplicity in all the different development steps that we can uh, produce and zoning is one of those, right? So we avoid a complex zoning uh, process means we save time, energy, and money, which drops to the bottom line of a development project. Got it. Got it. So why did you move from, I think originally you were developing all these big, big townhomes and you were selling it, right? Uh, but now you said you recently changed your strategy, right? To want to keep it for a long time, which has become right. a, a community of apartment units, right? So you moved right. from condo, selling like a condo, like a building the townhomes like and selling like a condo. Now you move into an apartment concept where you're going to give it up for a long-term rental. Do you think your demographic uh, buyers or renters would be different or it'd be the same? Because previously they were buying for them to stay and they don't mind paying the mortgage. Now they're yeah. becoming renters, right? So you have to find a renters with, yeah. a, uh, with a group of family. And uh, mm-hmm. the second question to that is, is there any law that allows how many people per unit that can stay, right, in terms of renters? Yeah, great question. So uh, just, to, just to clarify a little bit, so... When we did the early demonstration projects that we sold, we didn't. We never sold the individual units. Okay. So what we would do is we'd have a group of you know fifteen units in an apartment project, and we sold that oh, as sold an investment apartment. Okay. sale, as if you sold any other apartment project. Let's say you bought a you know two hundred unit value add, and you know you you did your work on the project and you sold it to an investor. Got we it. did the same thing. So. The reason that's important is because we're really apartment developers, right? Not condo developers and, and nothing wrong with that market, right? I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's a viable market, but particularly in California, uh, condo development has construction defect liability, uh, a long tail of risk in that. And so we, we've done condo projects in the past, um, but we haven't done that for, you know, probably decade plus. And Got really, it. So it, it, it was sold as an apartment building. Apartment market, right? So we okay. would develop an apartment project with 20, 30, 70 units, whatever the size of the project would. We'd be, we'd lease it up and then we'd sell it to an investor, right? Either a high net worth, right. uh, you know, investor, maybe a family office or institutional uh, buyer if it was big enough, right? But now what we're doing is we're just, instead of selling that, you know, apartment project, we're going to keep it ourselves. 
raise long-term oriented equity. Um, when we finish the project and lease it up, we'll fund a permanent loan and pay off the construction loan and then just hold it for, you know, we want to hold it, you know, in perpetuity, right. As a company, uh, you know, and, and my family is the owner of that company. So that's the main difference is instead of renting it and selling it, we rent it and hold it. Maybe it's got it. Got it. So you basically build it, uh, lease it up and you refinance it, go to a long-term that's like a, a BRR matter, right? Buy, yeah, right. Uh, exactly. That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> but isn't it, you're doing 100% value add, right? Yeah, so. right. Right. Yeah. Well, in fact, I say development's the ultimate value add because we Absolutely. have a new piece of land and we built a new building. Now it has yeah. more complexity than your standard value add deal, of course, because correct, we're correct. building new and we have zoning issues. Yeah. You have, I mean, you have a lot more risk because you have, you have yeah. dealing with a lot of permitting city issues. And that's right. Like, like right now, what's happening, right? You might have a construction loan, which can be, you know, mm-hmm. complex to maneuver in this kind of period, right? Where land yeah. Is, yeah. Well, and authentic. I think, you know, you're, you know, any, whether it's value add or new develop, new construction, always will have that. You know, I'm I, I'm in a project at the margin of the change from a good economy to a bad economy. Now, I will say, as you may have, be observing, you know, this, you know, this March 2020 time period that we're in is the most rapid deceleration of an economy I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we'll obviously day by day figure out what wh- how that's going to you know affect the the market. In fact, I'm tracking. I probably in the last two weeks, I've probably been on thirty different webinars. You know, CB Richard Ellis, Capital Markets, Cushman and Wakefield, Walker and Dunlop. Trying to figure out what's going to happen. George Smith Partners. Like everybody's trying to figure out what's going on, right? So yeah, so we have that risk, right? And I think a value add person would have it the same as new construction. Really, what happens for us is is there's two really main points that we have to worry about that the cycle changing, and that's when we're basically in a lease up and perm loan funding scenario, and that we've either started construction or not started construction. So on the latter example, if you know I'm like as I talk to people, I go, hey, look, if you haven't started construction yet, then don't right. Like sit on that land. Um, you may have bought the land. And hopefully you can work out a story with your investors. But arguably, uh, right now, actually, some people, and, and we're in that camp, actually think that this may be a good time to start new projects that are the right type of project when they get completed, right? Like our UTH model, we, we still are firm believers in that demographic. Because guess what? Even though we have this coronavirus recession that we're going to have to deal with for the next several quarters, right? You know, economic consensus is two to three quarters of recovery to five to six quarters of recovery, right? And the consensus actually is a recovery in, in, in Q4 of, of 2020. In California, particularly, we went into this recession already in an undersupplied uh, residential marketplace, right? So if you are affordable housing or middle-income workforce housing, you already were serving new units into a vastly undersupplied marketplace, right? High demand, low supply, right? Now, right now, demand is falling. At least that's the, you know, the stories we're hearing. Now, we're not seeing it in our portfolio, right, of units that we're leasing. We seem to be doing fine, right? I don't sit here and say, you know, we're bulletproof. I just think our model of uh, serving middle-income families and particularly giving them the capability to group together in a larger unit, five-bedroom, four-bath, actually is a special uh, sort of advantage now because now people will 
come together in family groups. Maybe if they weren't already, um, then they would come back and live together, right? Think of like roommates coming together, right? That would be the example. So I think we're generally feeling, gen, you know, like neutrally, you know, positive, right? Maybe, uh, you know, cautiously optimistic. Uh, we haven't seen drop off in leasing rates is, is what we're seeing as of today, right? But uh, we still have to be conscious of where we are. We have a project under construction. And actually, one of the consequences that I've seen, James, is that we actually have significantly more labor available <laughs> okay. in this marketplace than we had three weeks ago. And that's because people are getting laid off from their jobs, which is no positive. We don't, we don't say that's a good thing. But a net consequence to our, our construction process is that we've had a flood of labor come back. I don't know if they were working other types of jobs and came back to construction. Um, you know, our, our subcontractors, the story is that other people have shut their projects down, like they're not constructing, which people may be doing for like a defensive choice. But our project in Montebello um, is actually speeding up, surprisingly enough. And we won't be done with that until the end of this year or early next year. So from a leasing standpoint, you know, we're not going to lease until I think we're out of this, uh, at least the immediate threat of coronavirus and then, you know, recovering basically in Q4 2020, Q1 2021. So, and in fact, there's an old saying that some people say build through the recession, like an old, you know, developer builder, uh, you know, rule of thumb is, you know, construction costs should drop. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, um, but I think the pickup and available labor will make, uh, you know, subcontracting more competitive and drop labor costs, right? Um, and again, I don't say that's a positive. I mean, this environment of, of job layoffs, you know, at, at the huge levels that we see, are, and I think we look forward to, not look forward to, but we will see on a go-forward basis is incredibly discouraging, but, you know, look, we're, we're the United States, um, you know, to me, we're the most innovative, resilient, you know, country on earth. Uh, I always like to use Warren Buffett saying is never bet against America. So, you know, we're fully prepared for a recovery. It's just functionally, how long does it take? You know, what's the depth of the, the, you know, the economic downturn that nobody knows to today. Yeah. And so we'll continue to basically look forward to serving, you know, middle income families and, you know, what is still an undersupplied marketplace even today. Got it. What about the second question? How many people are allowed to stay in like one unit? Is it based on number of bedroom? Okay. Yeah. So that's a great question. So there's no rule per se. Um, each city may have occupancy limits, although that's probably more rare than not. We've never run into that issue. So, so functionally, what we see in our in our tenant profile is six to ten. Right? Okay. Uh, HUD, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, has a rule that basically says that occupancy is uh, how can they put it? They say the unit is over occupied. And there's a terminology I'm not remembering right now, but you know, there's too many people in the unit if you have more than two per bedroom. Yeah, right. I think that's two heartbeat per bedroom or something. Like yeah, that. right. Something that's right. So, that, yeah. so if, you know, our, our, we only do the five-bedroom UTH unit, right, four mm -hmm. bathrooms. So that would be 10 people. We generally don't see 10 people, though. Usually it's six to eight would be, mm -hmm. you know, the, the uh, sort of the average family size that we see. I mean, we have people re renting right now in, in our Orange County project that are four people. You know, we have a, a family that's a mother and two daughters. Both the daughters are in college, one in JC locally, one at Cal State Fullerton. 
And then interestingly enough, they're going to bring their grandmother from out of state to come live with them. And then they're going to use the fifth room as a study room for their daughters to, you know, who are in college. Now we're in flux right now with schools being out from coronavirus. Um, but I think the consensus is that, you know, most schools will return in, you know, August and September. Uh, at least that's the thinking right now. Although, you know, we do need to anticipate that there may be disruption in that. Um, yeah. This family is still going to rent the unit. You know, we have that even smaller families that will run a five bedroom. Yeah. And how much is the construction cost per per one townhome? How much does it come up to like? Yeah. So, you know, if, it, if it's not it, confidential, then it's okay. Up to about two weeks ago, we were averaging about $375,000 to $400,000 per unit of cost all in. That would be land, hard costs, city fees, soft costs. I think that will change. I do think construction costs may at least plateau. Uh, we're not planning for any reduction in construction costs, although that would be one potential effect of, of a recession, and particularly a deep recession, I think would certainly adjust construction costs downwards. But let me put it this way. You know, in the residential environment, the residential, you know, apartment development sector, you know, you're generally going to have a range of product densities from your walk-up two-story with surface parking, right? I think your garden-style walk-up all the way to the other end of the spectrum would be high-rise, you know, apartments in, you know, market like New York, right? New York City. We are right in the middle at 22 of the acre, right? That's like sort of the middle. Again, you, you see this concept of middle income, middle density, right? That kind of thing. And the reason that's important is because we're at the equilibrium point of the highest density that can produce the most rent, even though we fit in these 80 to 120 moderate income categories. So we're at the maximum density at the lowest cost. Right. So if we went up one more story to four stories under California code, we'd have to, you know, we'd have to do a heavier duty sprinkler system. We'd put more uh, exit, you know, life uh, safety egress corridors and stairwells, like adding a second stairwell. And then structurally, that would go into a different, you know, structural code environment. And so the costs go up, right, without much raising in income, right? So that's one end of the spectrum for us. The other end is let's say you go to a one story or two story rental product, right? So you much simpler to build, lower cost, except now you're not producing as much whole dollar revenue because the unit per square foot rent is going to be less, right? So you're generating uh, less rent at lower cost, right? In our world, this intersection of three-story townhouse is the simplest to build yet maximizes the capability to generate rent. And at least in our world, that that's the place to be. That's the sweet spot which basically, you know, fundamentally to answer your question, keeps our costs low against, again, this idea of removing complexity from the development process. You know, we are removing complexity from the build process, right? We build a type five on grade products. We do our slab on grade, like your standard, you know, garden style apartments or your house, right? Would be an example. Um, we're not building any parking structures or high rise buildings that drive the costs up significantly. Um, our land costs are obviously more efficient because we're building in low and lower middle income neighborhoods. So we're basically reducing cost and co and keeping costs efficient, right, is the answer. And that's part of the, you know, additive to the formula of what makes these deals work. So let's go into the slightly more detail into the cost structure, because this is affordable workforce housing. So can you describe the finishing of the interior unit that gives you optimum cost compared to yeah. somebody else buying, you know, somebody else building 
a town home for them to stay, right? So yeah. what are the items that inside the finishing that, you know, gives you uh, optimum uh, costs uh, for, you know, for making it a yeah. renting space? I'm with you. So great question. So, you know, a few things come to mind. So one of the things we do is we build an eight foot um, plate or an eight foot height inside the unit, right? So in California, particularly in your luxury product, your luxury rentals, ceiling heights would be nine or 10 feet, right? By eliminating that extra foot, you know, we keep costs, we make it again, simpler, lower costs marginally, right? I mean, each of these, you know, the net effect of the cost of that individual move is low marginally, but when we stack them up together, they start to add up. So we do that, you know, we, we stick with a pretty straightforward orange peel, you know, texture on the, on the drywall, um, you know, we're going to use a, a really, you know, sort of base grade vinyl window, right? Um, even a little bit like a notch or two below your standard mill guard that you would buy at Home Depot as an example. Uh, we have companies that basically manufacture vinyl windows here locally in Southern California that we buy and bolt from them, able to get cost, you know, benefit. Our, you know, cabinets are a production cabinet. Um, now, you know, in this day and age of the disruption from coronavirus, you know, the, the supply chains from China are vastly disrupted. And we didn't do this intentionally, but we actually found more success um, with the volumes that we build at ex- buying, you know, uh, materials domestically. So all of our cabinets are made at a cabinet shop in Southern California um, by just, you know, a small, medium business here locally. And we're able to get basically it's a little bit more expensive, but, you know, a couple hundred bucks per kitchen is yeah. sort of the differential. And we have very, you know, the guy's local, you know, he, we, we know when we're going to get the product, there's no shipping issues. There's no delayed, you know, shipping. It got stuck in the port of LA in a shipping container. We can't get it. So that would be an example. Uh, we've converted to, you know, we, we typically would build with a granite countertop, right. Which generally was, has been historically the most cost efficient hard surface that you could buy. Although lately we found quartz to be maybe a little bit more expensive. And so we've actually been able to, you know, buy very cost effectively quartz. Now I don't know that that's not going to change in the next few weeks as, you know, materials get used up, you know, as China is not able to deliver the way it was. So we may see people going to buy more domestic, you know, countertop materials and that may drive the price up. Um, let's see what else, um, you know, flooring is a, you know, pretty standard, like a vinyl plank. Um, so we've converted everything to not a wood vinyl plank, uh, but to a, basically it's like a polymer substrate basically makes it waterproof. So it looks like a real wood floor and it's planks. So it's got that look. Um, but this polymer base, this like resin base is bulletproof. You know, you can, you know, pretty much put it, you know, any liquid on it and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to warp or expand and, and go crazy like wood floors do at least, you know, like your, your standard production floor carpet, you know, apartment grade, um, doors would be your, your standard, you know, production, you know, home builder or apartment grade doors beyond that, you know, in California, we're, we're stuck with certain code requirements. So, so electrical, plumbing, mechanical, all have California characteristics, you know, mechanical has to be a certain energy efficiency. So we just try to buy the best cost product that meets the base criteria of the code. And we don't, we're not able to do the extra. So like in California and, and, you know, many places across the United States doing green code is, you know, a movement like people are trending towards that. We love the story of that. 
except our trade-off is the extra cost of building those green systems in means that we have to raise our rents, right, to maintain a feasible project. So our trade-off that we make is we say we don't build those green characteristics, at least the extra stuff, but we're able to deliver a lower rent to those families, right? And we still have the base code that we have to meet. So, you know, in 2020, uh, all residential projects that uh, are in the under the 2020 code all actually have to install a solar system. The capacity to install solar, but we actually have to put the solar system in, which is probably you know 10 to 15 thousand a unit of cost. Um, so we still do deal with those some things that we can't get away with. Um, maybe in this economic recession, there might be story for relief from some of those extras that California loads up projects with. Uh, there's a movement of front for fees to be reduced, like city impact fees. I think that's sort of the description of it. So it's nothing like, you know, you wouldn't look at it and walk into this unit and go, wow, it's so downgraded that it's mm-hmm. noticeable to me. Like we don't do Formica tops. Like that would be a move you would make to keep really low expenses on countertops, except that, you know, the long-term, you know, usability of Formica tops, you know, just is not, it's not a high performance product. So we've gone to hard surfaces, you know, on all of our projects, you know, probably, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, was the last time we did any, you know, non-hard surface granite or quartz uh, product. So I think that's, I'll stop there. I think that's a good yeah. description of it. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a really good description. Um, yeah. I think we went into really deep detail. So so just now you mentioned about the cost that you uh, talked about, like right? 300 to 400,000, let's say it's 350,000, right? So right. how many percent of it is the land and how many percent of it is the uh, building? Because I know yeah, California so- land is expensive, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, up to three weeks ago, um, you know, we were looking at projects on average that were probably 50 to 80 K a door of land. So out of that 400 K, okay. okay. 375, you might have anywhere between 50 to hundred K of land cost inside that number. Okay. So let's say 300,000 um, is the building improvement. cost. Yeah. Because- well, well, let me, let me refine a little bit more. So, you know, let's say, you know, roughly our bill costs for the actual hard cost of the construction of the building and the site improvement cost. Maybe let's say it's 200 to 250 a door. Okay. Um, and then in California, you know, we have a lot of city impact fees so you could easily do between you know ten and fifty thousand a door of city impact fees. Wow! Um, and really? then you have A and E costs, right? So architecture, engineering, uh, you know, you you do a lot more of that comparatively to a value add deal, right? And I've never thought of it on a per unit basis, but you know, we might have architectural fees, you know, soft costs A and E that might be. 300,000 per project, you know, spread across the, you know, number. So the reason why I'm I'm going with my question is I'm trying to see how, where is the another place other than California, which you can duplicate this right. model, right? Because California do have this impact fee, which you say like 50,000 a dollar, which is like, right. doesn't exist in a lot of cities out there, right? Right, agreed. It doesn't have the land, land cost that California has. Yeah, so, right. for example, if I want to do this in Austin, I'm just trying to find out, would it be like 200,000 per townhome, right? Yeah. Which can be a really, really uh, good price point, right? So the way I think of it, James, it's a great question. The way I think about it is you really have to be in a a specific marketplace that has a differential between the rents that are charged for an apartment versus the cost to build it. So you're on the right track for feasibility generally. Um, But I will will say generally, probably 80% of the markets across the United States will not work for this Mm -hmm. uh, product because they are in a lower cost, lower rent 
you know, environment. So like even in Southern California, so uh, there's a place called the Inland Empire in Southern California, that's Riverside and San Bernardino counties. You know, it's probably 30 or 40 miles from, you know, from where, where I am based in, in the LA basin. And that market doesn't work for this model because as soon as you get, you know, into that geographic region, two things happen really three things, but you know, one is your cost component go down. So your land price goes down and your build cost goes down. Right. So those two go together and then you're basically, that means housing costs goes down. So to buy a single family unit or to buy an apartment project per unit that drops and therefore the rents that they charge also drop, right. They all sort of move downward together. Right. Our product really has to be in an environment where where rent costs are high enough to support uh, you know the higher cost to build, but our you know strategy or our competitive advantage or marginal utility. In other words, what do we do that's better than other people that makes our projects more competitive? Is that we're able through this simplification process, this reduction of complexity, and our generating of whole dollar rents in the five bedroom environment, just able enough. To make these deals like superior in yield because we're dropping costs, dropping time enough to make the model work, right? Now, if rents drop enough and construction costs stay static, then the model won't work anymore, right? Mm -hmm. If rents stay static and costs go up, well, then, you know, to extreme cost increase, then the model won't work. So we're in a very specialized environment and I never sit here and say our team to our teams internally that we're bulletproof in this, but I but that market exists because of the supply constraint that I talked about before, which is a political supply constraint, right? California is the most difficult entitlement, uh, you know, marketplace in the United States, maybe other than maybe like New York City, but even New York City has like better zoning capabilities in, in a lot of cases than we do in California. Um, but I, but earlier I, I said we made assessments of San Diego, Bay Area, Portland, Seattle, and Denver, and we were able to find in each of those cities, uh, you know, neighborhoods where we could buy land cost effectively enough, and the rents were high enough in surrounding neighborhoods to that particular neighborhood that that differential worked. Right. I also said we looked at Dallas. I think there's a story in Dallas now in Dallas and the Texas marketplace. My assessment right now is five bedroom, four bath units. The square footages that we built probably don't make sense because a large family could just drive 20 minutes out and, you know, drive north out of, out of you know, D- Dallas Metro into marketplaces where they could rent a house, you know, cost effectively that worked for them. So we're in that, you know, assessment period for Dallas and then the coronavirus situation came. So I, I think that may dramatically yeah. change. I mean, a market like Texas, as you know, being, you know, uh, being in Austin or investing in Austin yourself is, you know, Texas is a marketplace where the market goes up enough, right? And values, cap rates drop just slightly. Well, then you can build outwards, right? Yeah, there's a lot of land out here. (laughs) So there's, you know, there's land, the zoning's very friendly. Um, So Mm -hmm. our look at Dallas really is is a pure urban infill type of play. So we're looking at specific micro markets in and around downtown Dallas um, that have an interesting story of sort of an up-and-coming neighborhood uh, where maybe there's a lot of, you know, new construction for sale housing happen, but no one's making an urban infill rental offer, right? That maybe, you know, in this townhouse model, 
Uh, we think there's a story around townhouse rental in Dallas specifically, although I won't go into any more detail than that, just to not give away any of our early uh, research. <laughs> you know, and I, and I like the story of Texas. In fact, before the recession, we actually had an office in, in San Antonio um, uh, for a period of time, and, and we were looking at San Antonio, New Braunfels, and Austin. So we had some familiar with the marketplace, although we haven't been there since the recession. But you know, look, it's a it's a much simpler build process in 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 Dallas, right? The codes are yeah, much more much friendly. Simple, yeah. The zoning's more friendly. I mean, the time period to get your projects approved is very short. Um, but then there's you know a trade off, which is you know a family can drive a, a, a you know how a big house at a lower rent than we would want to charge. So we have to look for the niche inside those marketplaces. And, and I, I'm not settled that Dallas works, although yeah. I think there's micro markets that work. Uh, we just need to wait for this, you know, uh, this economic turbulence that we're into, you know, clear out. And then I think, you know, down the road, I mean, look, you know, the, 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 you know, hundred people a day moving to Austin, or at least they were before, you know, this economic turbulence. Oh, I think it's going to get more. Yeah, you think it's going to increase? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it could. And, and, well, you know, I mean, just uh, by the way, James, for us, you know, who's moving out of California to Texas is middle-income families. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they can't so, you know, afford the um, high uh, cost of living there, right? And yeah, right. Now they're moving Texas. for for you know, you know, obviously state income tax. You know, no state income tax in Texas. Uh, more affordable housing costs. Not really much, you know, diminution in their in their salaries and their wages comparatively. The housing costs much more cost effective. So the logic you see it. And we just say, is there a story, some niche inside there that says we have that this correct differential between rents in a neighborhood and the cost to build it, it? You know, all the costs, land, build, city fees, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And coming back to, you know, renters driving 20 minutes away, you know, they, I mean, most of the time they just stay within the same community, right? They just, their neighbors, right. everybody's related to each other, right? And right. Just, and there is a story, there, right? Like there's pockets in Dallas that have, you know, uh, certain demographics uh, that have concentrated in those neighborhoods. And really for us, interesting, James, what we find, like when we, like we have a project in Fullerton, which is in uh, Orange County, you're uh, close by where we live in Long Beach. Everybody who's coming to rent this project is from around the project locally. Like we're mm-hmm. not even like getting anybody from the next city over, which, you know, in Southern California, LA, every, all the cities sort of run together. Right. So, you know, 10 blocks down, a couple of miles down and may all look the same, but it's a different jurisdiction. Right. Interestingly enough, everybody who's come to rent, which is, you know, I can't, I don't know what the count is from our leasing team, but they're all from Fullerton. So I, th- I think you, you, you've, you've hit on a in- interesting dynamic that I'm not fully settled on, but again, I think it goes back to this stickiness, this strong social networks, right? If your kids are in school locally, right, you're not going to move, you know, eight cities over to get a slightly, you know, better apartment. It's a big pain in the ass to change exactly. your kids' schools, right? Or like what we see is, you know, extended families, you know, local, right? And so these families, because of how they already live, you know, multi-generationally, they're not going to move 18 miles away from their family group that may not live with them, but is in the community, Right. Um, you know, jobs, the, these families, they locate close to their jobs. They choose their housing and their jobs based on where they already exist and live, right? Or they may move to where their job is going to be, which, you know, sort of uh, negates the, 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 the extended family. But, uh, but we see families that, you know, one, like the patriarch gets a, a great job working for the Port of Long Beach, and they may all move 
they all may move to Long Beach, not in our unit necessarily, yeah. but you know, they may go, Hey, look, this is the center of the family. Is this person working and they're making, you know, the, the best money we should facilitate that. And we're just, all we're doing, James, we're giving them in this UTH model, we're giving them a housing type that's coherent with the way they already live, Correct. right? In the neighborhoods where they already live. That's really important, right? I can't, you know, overstate that enough. Um, we're not importing families to Fullerton. We're serving families that are already there. They've just never had the chance to rent a five-bedroom apartment unit ever because yeah, it doesn't exist. Otherwise. It's completely a new niche, right? For that, yeah, they, right. they might just serve them. All right, Scott. So can you tell our audience about how to get hold of you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So best way is to go to our website, which is www.urbanpacific.com. Uh, there's a contact page, and I would also encourage you, there's a ton of investor education information, videos, articles. Uh, we talk a lot about a differentiation between investing in value-add versus investing in new construction projects, talk about workforce housing. Uh, the other place that I would encourage people to go is go to our YouTube channel. Just look up the Urban Pacific Group of Companies on YouTube, and we have probably 30 or 40 videos posted now that are also investor education-centric. Talking about workforce housing, you can see examples of the projects that we've completed or under construction on. Um, you know, we talk about market cycle economics. Um, and if uh, when people go to the website, if they want to uh, subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which we talk about the economic cycle, particularly now, we're, we're talking a lot about that on a weekly basis. Uh, there's a sign up button on the website. And you, can, uh, you can get our weekly newsletter. Got it. Thank you very much for coming. I mean, I really learned a lot because this is a completely new concept, right? Where you're building a townhome and getting like big families to stay together and rent, building it and renting it out as a apartment. So I, I really learned right. a lot. I'm sure my listeners uh, learned about it as well. Thank you for coming. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audio book. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.